interpretation is where we're at this afternoon. And last time, and so it was two weeks ago, we talked, we started with interpretation, um, had part one essentially. And we, we talked about two basic things. One is the two basic ideas about scripture. One being that the biblical meaning is fluid and changing, right? That it has to adapt to the culture or biblical meaning is set and it's certain. The culture is required to adapt to the meaning of scripture. The second thing we talked about is the basic approaches to scripture. Eisegesis, which is reading things into the text, right? Something starts in your head and you try to find it in here. Or exegesis, which is taking the meaning out of the text. And exegesis is what we want to do. So interpreting the meaning of words, whether it's in, in speech or in writing, is vitally important for good communication. Since I used the World War II illustration this morning, let me do it again this afternoon. In 1945, the U.S. government issued what was called the Potsdam Declaration. Essentially, it was toward the end of the war that demanded that Japan either embrace total surrender or complete destruction. And they waited anxiously for Japan's response. When Japanese Prime Minister Kantaro Suzuki was asked by a reporter for an official reaction, he gave a very brief statement. And one of the words in his statement was the Japanese word mokusatsu, which is derived from a word meaning silence. But that word has two possible meanings when you look it up in a a lexicon. The first meaning is to ignore silently as a show of contempt. And the second meaning is to remain silent in wise consideration. When the State Department workers interpreted the statements of the Japanese uh, premier, the U.S. government was outraged. They simply used the first meaning of the word to essentially to ignore with contempt and took that as the official Japanese answer. History shows that Suzuki likely intended the second meaning of the word to remain silent in wise contemplation or uh, another way of saying no comment, we're still thinking about it, right? Now, how important was that misunderstanding? Well, nuclear bombs got dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, immediately thereafter. The difference was a matter of interpretation. While the State Department's understanding could fit what Suzuki had said, the real question that had to be asked was not how do we understand this, but instead, what did the speaker actually mean? So I just want you to imagine for a moment that you get a a letter in the mail from a friend or a a relative, and it's a nice letter, but in it there are a few strange comments. They're they're writing to let you know that there is something seriously wrong going on in their family, but the wording is ambiguous at, at best and unclear at worst. You understand that they're trying to communicate something very important, And yet you have a difficult time grasping the specifics. 
And so you read the letter and you read the letter again and you read the letter again and you finally ask yourself, what does this letter mean? You're not asking, what does this mean to me? Because without a doubt, it it could mean several different things. But what is actually meant is only what the author intended. And that's what you want to understand. What do they mean by what they've written? Okay? We have to approach scripture that way as well. There's a, a very simple theory of communication that it involves three parts. There's the communicator, there's the message, and then there's the recipient of the communication, right? So right now I'm speaking to you. I have a responsibility to try to make a message that's clear. When you hear the message, you have a responsibility to try to understand what I'm saying. But in the case of scripture, we understand when we look at those three things, the communicator is God himself and he is perfect. The message is the word of God, which he claims it's, it's perfect, right? And so that puts a, a heavy responsibility on us to do our part in understanding this communication. And to do that, there are four basic rules to follow or four keys to biblical interpretation. First is literal. The Bible means what it says and says what it means. We have to begin assuming that the Bible actually does mean what it says. Uh, When the face value of scripture makes sense, there's no reason to go looking for some other sense of what it might mean. Now, there are times when the face value of Scripture, we look at and go, well, maybe this doesn't make sense. And we'll talk about those in just a moment. But just follow the logic, right? God created us. God established the use of language. Every language on earth is actually, it, it derives from that multiplicity of languages at Babel that God himself did. He's wise, he's true. There's no reason to assume that God would be unable to communicate with us using language. And so this is the the basis of taking scripture according to its literal meaning. Uh, In a book called The Layman's Guide to Interpreting Scripture, Walter Henriksen, I loved this paragraph. He said, if you were to say to an audience... I crossed the ocean from the United States to Europe. You wouldn't want them to interpret your statement to mean that you crossed life's difficult waters into a haven of new experience. Likewise, no journalist would write about a famine like is going on in India and have his words interpreted to mean that the people of India are experiencing a great intellectual hunger. Scripture has a, a clear message that is of spiritual importance and it doesn't need for us to try to spiritualize or allegorize, right? To to say everything is symbolic and trying to come up with a meaning. Just take it for what it says. So, for example, the the ancient landmarks, they're not symbols of historic doctrine. doctrine. They're literally just landmarks. That's what it's talking about. The clear sense is the true sense. And so approaching the Bible in a literal sense is makes the most sense when we see how Jesus himself approached scripture. It was literally, when 
the many times in the gospels when the Lord quotes scripture, he took both the meaning and the words and the application to himself in a very literal sense. So for example, go read as, as he was tempted by Satan and he always responded with scripture, but he was using the scripture in a literal sense, right? If God wants me to have bread, he can make bread. He said, you're not to live by bread alone, but by what comes out of the mouth of God. You are, you know, he, he told Satan, get behind me. You shall worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. He always used the very literal sense of scripture. And that's an example for us. Now, in fairness, we need to point out that the literal meaning still allows for the use of figures of speech um, that are common both to the writer and to the reader. So, for example, if I was to say to someone in here that, you know, time flies, you don't like expect to see a clock zipping across the air in the room. You understand that's a figure of speech meaning that it seems like time speeds up sometime. Or if I'm saying it's raining cats and dogs, you're going to take an umbrella outside, but you're not expecting that umbrella to get hit with canines and felines falling from the clouds, right? You understand what figures of speech are. And taking the Bible literally doesn't mean that we ignore figures of speech or literary conventions like similes or metaphors. It, it just requires us to understand those are figures of speech, right? So um, my example for this would, would be when God, God at one point in the Old Testament said that Israel is a cake not turned. Okay, it's one of my favorite examples. It's describing cooking, like essentially think of a pancake, cooking a pancake that hasn't been turned over. Now taking that in the literal sense, we're not assuming that God is saying that the nation of Israel is a literal pancake that's on one side and hasn't been turned over yet, right? We understand this is a figure of speech. We, we look into that scripture and we get that what God's saying is you're like a unturned pancake. You're overdoing some stuff and you're underdoing the other things. And this is still a, a literal approach to scripture. So we don't go looking for secret meanings that only we can find, we need to grasp the clear spirit-intended meaning. The second key is a historical approach. The text can't mean what it never meant. We have to take scripture and consider the historical context. As strange as it might seem to say this, it is a mistake to approach scripture with the idea that the Bible was written to me, the modern reader. The Bible was not written to me. It was written for me. It's valuable for my use, but there was, it was written to a specific audience that changes depending on which book of the Bible you're reading, right? And so historical interpretation tries to understand the original intent of scripture and it denies that that original intent can ever change. In other words, what God was communicating through the original writer to the original audience is the meaning of scripture and that does not change. The the simple adage to remember is the text can't mean what it never meant. Now, 
be, be fairly warned here because an honest approach to historical interpretation is going to challenge long-held misconceptions about some of your favorite passages of Scripture. So, for example, Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That has little to no implications about succeeding at shooting a basketball or any of the other hundreds of misuses that it gets used for today. In the context, in the historical context, Paul was writing about suffering in the verse before, and he can endure suffering because he is strengthened by Christ. So, I mean, we understand historically he was writing from prison to the church at Philippi, right? Urging them to have joy through sorrow. So using the historical sense would also, for example, tell us that the Song of Solomon is not about Jesus and the church. That would have made no sense to Solomon when he wrote it or to the original audience when they read it, right? And though that is often described today as, well, this is the meaning of the Song of Solomon. It is about the relationship between Jesus and the church. It's simply not. They never would have understood it that way, nor do we get to say that the meaning changes over time. The original meaning is the meaning, okay? The text can't mean what it never meant. The grammatical rule involves studying individual words or phrases of the Bible. When Paul said that all scripture is inspired, he's really saying every scripture is inspired. Even the individual words of scripture were chosen deliberately by the Holy Spirit, and those words are important. You have to know what the words mean if you're going to understand what the word means. And so you have to develop a good theological vocabulary because cult groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, they take very common biblical words like salvation or or grace or redemption and they redefine those things and you have to have a good basis for understanding those words if you're going to have a discussion with them. Grammatical interpretation deals best with the original languages, right? Greek in the New Testament, Hebrew in the Old Testament. But just to be clear, we're not, we're not saying that any student of the Bible has to be trained in those languages in order to understand God's word. Reading the word translated into another language is sufficient, assuming that it's a good translation and we don't wanna go back and talk about all those, right? But the goal of grammatical interpretation will reveal subtle nuances in the meanings of words that aren't readily obvious um, as they're translated between languages. Look at Galatians chapter one for a moment. Maybe the easiest example to point to. Galatians chapter one. We're just going to read verses 6 and 7. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, 
just reading that in English, you can read those verses and grasp the essential meaning of scripture, right? Paul is saying, don't be dissuaded by false teachers who pervert the gospel of Christ. But there is a nuance here of translating Greek into English that might confuse an English reader into asking, well, how could I be called to another gospel that is not another gospel? Which is what Paul says in 6 and 7, right? That you, that you be so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. And so that's not going to be obvious in English. The answer lies in Greek, the Greek word heteros, is, means another of a different kind, and alos means another of the same kind, and Paul's using two different words there, but in English, all we have is the word another, right? And so what he's saying is he's worrying about them straying into a different kind of gospel, which is not the same kind of gospel, right? Now, It's a good example of how grammatical issues are important, but you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to, to get help with this. Um, getting acquainted with some resources like a Bible dictionary, lexicon, word studies, generally a good study Bible is going to bring this kind of things to light, and we'll talk about some study Bibles here in a minute. But other things to watch for in grammatical interpretation is comparing the use of words um, within the context of a book or even multiple writings by the same author, right? Uh, we've seen on Sunday mornings how John uses many of the same words in his letters as he did in his Gospels, and he sort of defined them back here and then uses them in his letters, and it, it helps for us to consider those words and how he uses them. Um, it also is helpful to have uh, some knowledge of how words are used outside of scripture. My favorite example for that is the word baptizo. When you understand that the word baptizo is used in naval warfare for sunken ships, then you know baptizo does not mean sprinkling somebody. You know it means putting them all the way under. Right? So all of these are grammatical, you know, concerned with words. And then the fourth is contextual. If you're struggling to grasp the meaning of scripture, always look at the context. I cannot say enough. Every text has a context and the context matters. So um, just a, a humorous example of this from a guy named James Davis. He says, what, what, would I mean, what would it mean if someone said, it was a ball? Well, the answer is going to depend on the context, right? If it was the umpire saw the pitch drift to the outside and said, it was a ball. Or we went to a dance last night and the dance was so formal, it was a ball. Or if he said, I went, I went golfing and I saw something small and white in the tall grass, it was a ball. Or I had so much fun at the game last night, it was a ball. Right? All of those mean something different. And you could look up the meaning of ball in a dictionary and you might find all of those meanings there, but only the context is going to tell you what it's actually meant. 
by the statement. Right? So the nearest context should get the most weight and interpretation as you're reading. If you're confused about a word, look at the words around it. Look at the, the sentences surrounding that, the verses before, the verses after. It's, it's place in a, a chapter, the theme of a whole book, and then the totality of scripture. Um, but always be asking yourself, who wrote this? Who was it written to? When was it written? What was the purpose of this book? And how does it fit into the entirety of God's revelation? Let me use a pretty common example. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Or more often, just the first phrase of that verse, there it is in, in red letters, Jesus saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And so it's very common to have a sermon to either be preached as a whole on that text or just have that phrase used as sort of an emotional evangelistic tool at the end of the message, right? Jesus is knocking. Sorry, I almost want to say it in a crazy act. Jesus is knocking, you know? You can add the breathy part too. Jesus is knocking. Let him in your heart, right? He's ready to come in, but you've got to open the door. Well, the verse before it, look at the context. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand in the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. This is not about salvation. The immediate context is about correction and repentance. You expand the context further, you find out, well, this is part of a letter from uh, a letter written to the church at Laodicea, which you'll uh, see that it's been lukewarm about its love and service. So the goal of verse 20 is not an evangelistic invitation. And I'm glad that it's not because I don't want to picture Jesus as a helpless weakling who can't get the door open to get to me. It's about repentance and his willingness to restore fellowship when you mess up. So one final thing I'll put in the category of contextual. You always have to be, when considering the context, consider the, the genre or the category, the style of the passage that you're reading. The, the chart down there at the bottom, I don't know if you can read it. It says it's from HaleyWrites.com. Haley Lining, I don't know anything about her. I'm not endorsing her whole website, but she had this chart and I thought it was fantastic. So... I'm just giving it to you. Um, there are different kinds of scripture. There are narratives, right? Portions that are telling a story. If you're reading a narrative section as it's recording historical events, you have to understand that sometimes it's telling you what happened, but it's not telling you what you should do. It's just telling you what happened. There's a difference between being descriptive and prescriptive, 
right? So be careful to see whether or not it's actually commanding you. In the gospel narratives, as you hear the story of Jesus, if you're ever struggling with the meaning of a passage of scripture, remember the goal of every gospel writer was to tell you more about Jesus. And so if you're coming up with some meaning that's not telling you more about Jesus, that's just not what they were intending in that passage. Um, The law Learn to differentiate between the area of law which applied to ancient Israel and those principles that still apply today, right? Many of you already know my favorite example of this. Don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. That's part of the law. It's there three times. I've never wanted to, you know? And so is that something I'm concerned about today or is there a principle in there probably either a principle of cruelty or the principle of following what was a pagan practice at the time, right? There are principles to still be understood. Poetry, or she lists it here as wisdom, those books are filled with figures of speech. Furthermore, it is meant to evoke emotion. I mean, just say, for example, if you start to read a psalm and you're trying to understand the meaning of a psalm, if you are not getting the feeling of the psalm, then you almost certainly are not getting the meaning of the psalm either because they are meant to evoke emotion, right? And so you have to feel it in addition to understanding it. You have to do both. The epistles, letters, those are clearly more didactic, meaning they're teaching. These really are instructions on how to act. So, you know, listen to what the writer says about the Christian faith and listen to the therefores as they kind of build their their argument along the way with what you're supposed to believe and how you're supposed to behave. Um, On the backside of your notes... I got three recommendations for study Bibles. A good study Bible is always going to help you stay on the literal, historical, grammatical, contextual path, right? You're not going to stray too far off of it. But they are not perfect. A study Bible is not perfect. The text is perfect. The notes aren't. There's a writer named Justin Taylor who says the most important feature of any study Bible It's the most important feature of any study Bible is the horizontal line that separates the text of scripture from the notes with the study Bible, right? That's the most important feature. And so what makes a good study Bible is lots of notes, thorough book introductions. Book introductions are incredibly important, very helpful. Theological accuracy, obviously, um, a helpful layout, right? I think a visual, the visual appeal of a Bible is pretty important if I'm going to be staring at it for long. And it's also important that they don't skip the hard stuff, right? I've had study Bibles where I had a question and invariably every time I got to a hard passage, the study Bible said nothing about the difficult parts. It just wanted to explain the easy parts, Right? You want one that doesn't skip the hard stuff. And so here's, here's my three recommendations. My favorite is the one on the left, the Holman Christian Study Bible. Sometimes it's called the Holman Study Bible. Sometimes it's called the Christian Standard Study Bible. But it's available in a lot of versions. 
um, almost uh, any of the modern version. And, and it's, in addition to solid study notes, it's very visually appealing. I know some of you have it. It's full color. It's laid out nicely. It's very helpful. Charts, graphs, maps. One of the things I like about the Holman is that it includes some essays or articles that can be quite helpful. If you were in Randy's Sunday school class this morning where he was in Luke 24 and you have a Holman, you might have noticed that there was a full page essay on as, as Jesus is talking to those disciples on the road to Emmaus and it says he opened the scriptures to them, there was a full page article about Christ in the Old Testament. Here are some of the scriptures that Jesus might have been using. It's very helpful. Um, Close second, it almost hurts me to say second, but a MacArthur Study Bible, just know it's not available in the King James Version. You can get a new King James, uh, ESV, NIV, NASB. I expect very soon the Legacy Standard Bible is going to have a, a MacArthur Study Bible available because he's the one who's behind that translation that just came out. But um, excellent notes and introductions. It's not quite as visually appealing um, if you're looking for a study Bible only for the notes that are helpful, then MacArthur is the one I would point to because he has the most and most helpful notes. Um, probably the way to go. And then the third one, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine gave me an ESV study Bible. Obviously, the downside, it's only available in the ESV. It's the ESV study Bible. Um, if you're a fan of maps, I'll say about that one, if you're a fan of maps, so are they. You are not going to find a study Bible with more maps than that one has. So if you're a map person, that might be the one for you. Um, if you're ever looking for a Bible, you want help, come find me. I'll be glad to try to give you some guidance. But with that, we'll be done with interpretation and then we'll move on, Lord willing, next time to illumination, which will be more fun.